Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this first Institute for Government event at Labour Party Conference 2022, How Can the Better Use of Data Benefit Public Services, supported by the Bright Initiative from Bright Data. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the IFG, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you to this, the coveted 8am Monday <laughs> slot. <laughs> Just discussing, we've got a fantastic panel, but I think the fact that you've got about eight o'clock to come and watch this means we've got a fantastic high quality audience as well. Um, for those of you who don't know about the Institute for Government, we are the UK's leading independent think tank working to make government more effective. Lots of other think tanks think about the what of government policy, we think about how they do it uh, through a series of research reports, events like this one and learning and development as well. For those of you who don't know Bright Initiative, our sponsors today, uh, Bright Initiative is a programme that uses public web data to drive positive change. It's powered by Bright Data, one of the world's most powerful web data platforms, and uh, the initiative provides 350-plus global organisations, uh, public bodies, non-profits and academic institutions with data and expertise to tackle the most pressing global issues. Uh, a bit of housekeeping before we get underway. This event is on the record, so anything you say will be held against you. Uh, we will be producing a sound recording afterwards, so when we do come to audience questions, please wait for the microphone to come to you. If you're on social media, we are live tweeting from at IFG events, and we are using the hashtag IFGLab22 as well as hashtag Lab22. And this is the first of 15, I think, IFG events at Labour Conference over the next few days. Uh, there is a flyer on a number of the seats if you'd like to learn more about the others. And you can, of course, go to the Institute for Government website and the Labour Party Conference app. So, how can the better use of data benefit public services? Well, in its forward, ministerial forward to the National Data Strategy, the government felt that the pandemic was the high watermark of data use in government and showed what was possible from using data in public services. They were pointing to things like the use of health data across the system and also things like helping the clinically vulnerable access food uh, deliveries during the pandemic. But there were also controversies, things like GPDPR and the failed attempt to use more of patients' health data, as well as local government not having the data it needed. Government is very keen on sharing data across public services to try to make them better. We've got the integrated data system uh, coming in and we've got a data protection and digital information bill currently in Parliament. So lots of stuff on public sector data in the ether at the moment. It brings lots of opportunities, better services, better understanding of how services are performing, better policies and greater efficiencies. But there are also risks. There could be expensive failures. Uh, there could be additional burdens to frontline staff. There might be some untrustworthy use, the embedding of inequalities and bias, and ultimately not delivering the promised benefits. So how can government ensure that the public benefits from the use of data in public services? How can it mitigate the risks and make the most of the, of, of the opportunities? And what would and what should Labour's approach be? Well, to help us answer those rather big questions, we have a stellar panel for you this Monday morning. Uh, first of all, we'll be hearing from Dr. Antonio Weiss, senior partner at the PSC, the Public Service Consultants. Uh, he's a digital transformation and public services expert, the author of uh, several books, including The Practical Guide to Digital Transformation. He's also attached to the Bennett Institute for Public Policy at Cambridge University, and on the political side, uh, has also advised Labour, is part of the Parliamentary Candidates Programme, has been a prospective parliamentary candidate and is a Labour councillor in Harrow. We'll then hear from Matt Davis, senior policy advisor at the Open Data Institute and full disclosure I'm a special advisor at the ODI as well as being at the IFG. Um, the ODI is a non-profit which works with governments, companies, civil society to build an open trustworthy data ecosystem to create a world where data works for everyone. Uh, Matt uh, was previously an advisor to members of the Shadow Cabinet as a researcher to Chi Onwura MP, the Shadow Digital Minister, uh, worked for the Labour Party on policy development, including the 2019 Manifesto, uh, and has done lots of research and briefing across several policy areas. He was also previously a project coordinator at Mester. We'll then hear from Helen Milner OBE, the Group Chief Executive at the Good Things Group here in the UK and in Australia. Uh, in the UK, the Good Things Foundation aims to fix the digital divide for good. Uh, Helen has over 30 years' experience working in and leading organisations that create and deliver education over and about the internet. Uh, she was made an OBE in 2015 for, uh, for services to digital inclusion uh, and was also named 2017 Digital Leader of the Year in the UK 
and in 2020, Computer Weekly uh, named her the 14th most influential person in UK IT. She was also a member of the Commons Speakers Commission for Digital Democracy uh, and has been an advisor to the Public Accounts Committee on Digital Engagement. And last but not least, uh, we have my colleague Nick Davis, uh, Programme Director at the Institute for Government for Public Services and Outsourcing. Nick, for, the num for a number of years now, has overseen the IFG's Performance Tracker Project, which aims to use data to understand how various public services, including GPs, hospitals, schools and courts, are performing. Uh, and there are lots of arguments in there about how data can be used uh, to benefit public services. Before joining the IFG, Nick was at the National Council for Voluntary Organisations, the NCVO, Children England, UK Youth, and was also researcher for a Member of Parliament. I'm going to ask each of our panellists for a short opening contribution, up to about five minutes. We'll have some discussion between the panel, and then we'll come out to you, the audience, uh, for the last 20 minutes or so. Again, do wait for the microphone to tell us who you are as well, and we'll be wrapping up at quarter past nine. So, without uh, further ado, uh, we'll go to our first speaker this morning, and that's Antonio. Thank you very much, Gavin, and thank you uh, for, for all coming this morning. I narrowly escaped Dawn Butler's Jamaica party, which did look fantastic last night, but I think it's entirely too shameful this morning. <laughs> um, so, maybe if I start with uh, two separate heads uh, on this, so particularly thinking on the Labour side. Um, so, public services are clearly at the uh, a nadir. I mean, in terms of all uh, track record, and the Institute for Government does some amazing work in performance tracking in terms of the state of public services. Uh, court backlogs, hospital waiting times, GP access, dentist appointments are all at their lowest ebb. And so clearly we need a radical transformation in how we approach public services. Um, and data, certainly from, a, from a, a Labour policy perspective, we believe is an enormous part of that issue. And I think there's lots of different angles that we can go on. I'm sure we'll talk about it. It can obviously clearly improve things in terms of outcomes. So in Britain, we have terrible counts for outcomes for an advanced station, some of the worst in the OECD, but we actually track very, very poorly uh, wh which interventions work from a, from a medical perspective. So understanding data better in terms of those interventions can help us have better outcomes if the things like life-saving vaccines, but also it can help in terms of prevention. So joining up data can allow us to understand where there might be instances of recidivism within the court system or indeed in the, in the education system where issues might arise. Um, frankly, it just makes citizens' lives better. And I think that's, the, that's probably where we should always focus on first. I think there was a big temptation over the last, well, I think 12 years in Britain, which uh, had many good things about it to focus on digitizing and improving public services. And a lot of this was driven by efficiency. And I think it needs to reorientate around what makes citizens' lives better. Um, and from you know, my perspective, and certainly from where the Labour Party is at, that's about joining up public services. So to give you an example, so some, you know, joining up uh, some of my experiences as a councillor, so I have casework, very sad instance where uh, there's a family who are effectively homeless, currently in temporary accommodation, a uh, child is being moved around from pupil referral unit to pupil referral unit, the father has very severe health issues and has to go to multiple different hospitals, um, and they are being moved across the country, and they contacted me and said, um, what on earth is happening? Nobody can tell me anything. I don't know where I'm going to be moved to. I don't know who's going to, you know, what's going to happen in terms of my consultant care. I don't understand what educational place we're going to get. And unfortunately, um, from the local authority perspective, we're pretty much in the dark as well because the data for that sits across the DfE, sits somewhere in the local authority, sits somewhere in the health records, sits somewhere in the electronic health records, sits somewhere in the GP set, sits somewhere with housing, somewhere with benefits. And what this clearly shows is that we need to understand how those public services, how the service element of public service matters. So ultimately there, the issue isn't for this family, uh, we want to you know, move home and get our new child place and get our benefits sorted. No, they're in a crisis and they're being moved from somewhere that they don't really want to move. So the data should be joined up around that need. And that requires a lot of work. We can, I'm sure we'll go into some details about different ways in which that can be done. But the, it is definitely possible, doesn't necessarily require identity schemes or single uh, centralised sources of identity at all. And I think that's very dangerous that we don't get into that world because that immediately causes people to be you know, understandably nervous. It's about data sharing, it's about making sure that we put citizens' lives at the heart of things um, and that we you know, believe that it is possible to reduce those silos and think from somebody in stress and in crisis 
how does the public service make their lives better and how does the data flow with them to improve that and it's a it's a really exciting time and there's a lot of appetite to make that change clearly you know the, the focus is on the economy at the moment and the, the run on sterling that's happening right now um, but this is a, a, a really important focus for the Labour Party and for Keir and I think for the country as well. Thank you very much Antonio. Uh, we'll go next to Matt. Great, thanks Gavin and, and thanks to our chief for, for having us uh, today. Um, as Gavin says, I'm a senior policy advisor at the uh, Open Data Institute uh, in our public policy team. And for those of you who aren't familiar with us, uh, we're a non-profit company. We were founded in 2012 by Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web, and Sir Nigel Shadbolt, who's an AI expert based at the University of Oxford. And we want a world where data works for everyone. And we think the only way this can happen is if data gets to those who need it to innovate, to make better decisions, and yes, to improve public services, as we're here to discuss today. And this means, we think, an a more open data ecosystem. We need to see data shared across organisations and sectors, rather than being kept in corporate or government silos. And I think that example, a local level that Antonio just gave, is a really good example of why we need more data sharing, uh, including in the public sector. But we also think data needs to be used in trustworthy ways. So, for example, citizen privacy needs to be protected, and data shouldn't be used to make services that, for example, discriminate. And we've seen a lot of that in various controversies around the use of algorithms um, in public services. So we like to talk about building an open and trustworthy data ecosystem. And we work with governments, companies, and other civil society organizations around the world to achieve this. And you know, to build on some of Antonio's points, I think that data will be vital to delivering a lot of what a Labour government would want to do on public services making them more modern, more efficient, more personalised, and as we've already heard, more joined up. But I, I think um, we're unlikely to hear much about data or digital from Labour's front bench this week. And I think there is a sense that despite some really interesting thinking about data on the centre-left and, and some honourable exceptions such as Antonio and, and some members of the front bench, I think there's a sense that Labour isn't really leading on this agenda. And I want to talk a little bit about, about why. Because I think in some ways it's understandable, right? Data is seen as technocratic and not the sort of thing that will engage with voters. And I think the onus is on us as, as data people and data policy people to try and make the case for those benefits. And I also think, you know, in some quarters on the centre-left and left, there's a bit of a suspicion of open data, open government. Uh, there's an association with the coalition government that drove through, you know, the transparency agenda and the open public services agenda. And, and there's a, a kind of, um, you know, a, a bit of tribalism around that maybe. But also, you know, digitalisation uh, in public services, I think, is sometimes fairly, sometimes un and sometimes unfairly, seen as a, uh, a lever for uh, backdoor privatisation in public services. And, you know, the current interest in Palantir's role in the NHS is a case in point around that. That's got a lot of attention. Um, it's also seen sometimes as a fig leaf for justifying uh, efficiency savings with the argument that costs can be cut, but services kept the same, and data and digital will magically uh, make that equation balanced. But at the same time, we need to remember that data.gov.uk, which is, I think, still the largest repository of open government data in the world, was actually established in the final years of the new Labour government. And uh, the ODI itself, while set up in 2012, was actually the brainchild of those dying days of the last Labour government too. So there is a really uh, strong Labour tradition of creative thinking on government use of data and uh, public services. I think that torch is thankfully being carried by some people in the party today. And it's, you know, again, it was great to hear uh, those remarks from Antonio. Um, but I do think data needs to be uh, placed more front and centre of the Labour offer for revitalised public services. And to enable that across the public sector, we need to invest in public data infrastructure, including data standards, data assets, the right people and the right processes to enable that across the public sector. Um, so I just want to finish my remarks with a couple of key points on what I think government will need to get right to deliver its benefits and what Labour can try and drive forward in government. And the first of these is around leadership and, and structures. You know, in the last few years, we've seen an explosion of data initiatives across the UK public sector. An ODI report last year, which Gavin will be very familiar with because he authored it, uh, found well over 100 different bodies uh, across government, uh, just uh, national government, I believe, uh, rather than even taking in local government, with significant responsibility for or a strong focus on data. So there's a risk then that we lack the cohesion and central leadership needed to drive significant improvements in public services using data. And this is something that the uh, National Audit Office has highlighted, saying that despite years of effort and many well-documented failures, government has lacked clear and sustained strategic leadership 
on data. So that's pretty damning from the NAO. And they've argued you know, that played a role in, among other things, the Windrush scandal. And the second point I want to make is around data literacy. And at the ODI, we define that as the ability to think critically about data in different contexts and examine the impact of different approaches when collecting, using, and sharing data. And we think this broader data literacy uh, of asking the right critical questions about a data project is essential to ensure policymakers understand how they can actually drive those benefits uh, for the public in terms of public services, um, but also to help mitigate the risks. So, you know, I've already talked about controversies around algorithms. I think the 2020 A-level fiasco is an example of what can go wrong when you don't have that data literacy. And there's been a really strong focus, I think, in recent years on improving that data capability within the, within the civil service. But um, much of it is provided through data-oriented professions and functions. Not enough is offered at a more generalist level and at more junior levels, but it needs to be embedded throughout. And as we've already heard, it needs to be across local government as well. So we really need to embed a culture of data literacy within government and ensure that civil servants and policymakers across departments, professions and functions understand that and they want to bake data into those projects from the beginning. Uh, so I'll stop there, but I think there's a huge amount to talk about on this topic uh, and how we get that data infrastructure to enable the benefits we want to see. Thank you very much, Matt. Uh, we go next to Helen. Thank you. Um, so good morning, everyone. Um, we're all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed this morning, aren't we? Um, so Good Things Foundation, we're a digital inclusion charity working across the UK and Australia. Um, so the way that we work is we work with thousands of community organisations at the hyper-local level, which means that we're very much in touch with the needs of the excluded people that we're supporting. Um, that uh, Since 2010, we've helped 4 million people, so we definitely are interested at working at scale. Um, and as you mentioned, I've worked with Parliament, but we've also worked with a number of central government departments, um, a number of them which kind of really emphasises that silo point, you know, DCMS, DFE, HMRC, Ministry of Justice, just to name a few, and now, of course, with um, combined authorities and local authorities as well. Um, we do three things. Uh, we support this national network, the National Digital Inclusion Network. We also run something called the National Device Bank, getting devices out to people. And for this audience, we also do a third thing, which is quite confusing, and it's named called the National Data Bank, which has nothing to do with the sort of data that we're talking about this morning. It's a connectivity data, making sure people who can't afford the internet can have access and working with Virgin Media, O2, Vodafone, M3, we have enough uh, data, connectivity data, for half a million people who are absolutely working at scale. Um, so I think we're all agreeing that data can help us to improve public services, right? So full stop. Um, so it'll help us better target, uh, better design, understand what's working, what's not. We'll probably focus more on what's working than what's not working um, and making sure that those public services are effective. Um, you won't be surprised that I'm going to make sure that we um, highlight the fact that if we're talking about user data, um, there's lots of people who aren't in that data. Um, so 10 million people in the UK are digitally excluded. So that means they either can't afford the internet or they don't have the literacy to use it. Um, so if they're not there, then that data doesn't represent them. Um, the HSC actually is saying that they want 75% of the adult population to be using the NHS app by 2024. So that shows that if you're looking at the data of people who are currently using the NHS app, or even those that use it in 2024, there's going to be a very large a number of people who are excluded from that. Um, and also we know that there'll be algorithm biases, even for the people who are online, um, to uh, not be showing up online in the way that uh, is expected. Um, so data is definitely important, but I just want to shout out for um, effective um, co-design, um, making sure that services are being designed both by looking at the data, but also working with people with lived experience is, is very, very important. And, and also, obviously, making sure that people designing public services aren't making assumptions. Um, so you're all probably going, oh, yeah, they're all old, right? But So some of them are old, but they're older or they're poorer. But 39% of people who are digitally excluded are under the age of 60. Right? So they're in our working age population right now. Um, and also because um, digitally excluded people skew towards uh, being uh, on the lower incomes, they also are disproportionately much higher users of public services. Therefore, if you're using the user data of the people who are online, 
um, for the services that you're designing, then you may well be excluding the very people that the services are being used for. Um, we're working with the universities in Liverpool and Loughborough um, on a minimum digital living standard to understand the framework around which we need to um, look at the data and to um, understand what's the minimum that people need. Um, so digital exclusion, we use data quite a lot. I mean, today we're launching our Digital Nation 2022, which is all the facts and stats around who is offline. Interesting, the point about efficacy, though, because this is very much about the numbers, the demographics, who is and isn't offline, what they're doing, but it isn't actually much about the efficacy of the work that we're doing to, 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 to change that. And, and I suppose that's probably one of the, the big issues. I just want to shout out, though, to all the people who do collect data on digital exclusion in the UK, because we are actually world-leading, um, both um, Ofcom, um, the ONS, and uh, Lloyd's... Um, Lloyd's, what are they called? Banking Group? We all just call them Lloyd's, don't we? <laughs> um, so they do uh, an annual um, consumer digital index as well. So that means that we do have a very rich data set, um, but like I said, it's more about who's there and who's not there. Um, the, uh, then the final thing I want to just say is around um, that maybe one of the reasons why digital and data doesn't appear sexy is because... Um, we all take it for granted. By we all, I mean everybody in this room. And so we really have this, obviously, a digital divide. But for many people who are designing public services and many people who are thinking about that, they're part of the haves, right? So they're on the side where everybody they know is using public services, uh, sorry, is using the internet. And of course, technology is only about, within public service domain, about improving those services, ensuring better outcomes, and making sure that the services are efficient and effective. So that actually it's about the people using the technology and then the data is collecting the information about those people and about um, those users. And I think that's why we do have this um, vacuum, if I can use the word, of leadership around digital um, within all political classes, actually, is that because I think the people, decision makers, are using technology all of the time and they don't think that there's anything radical about that whereas actually digital can massively transform people's lives um, and it can massively transform the way that we deliver services so i think it's so important that we do get it back on the agenda and we, we try and get the leadership i mean the labor party to recognize how important it is thank you very much helen and last but not least uh, we go to nick uh, thank you very much um so i want to talk about barriers to better use of data in public services at three levels. Uh, so the public, uh, then those um, delivering frontline public services, uh, and finally from the perspective of those in the centre of government. Uh, so from the public's perspective, I think in general the public are probably more relaxed about the use of their data than the government gives them credit for a lot of the time. People trade their personal data for free services online every day and it doesn't worry them too much. Uh, and I think with respect to public services, the evidence shows that if you explain clearly and transparently to people what data you want to collect, what it's going to be used for, who is going to use it, and critically, how it's going to improve their experience of that public service, it, in most cases, they'll be reasonably happy to have that data shared. Actually, I think the far bigger barrier is um, the capacity of frontline public services. Uh, so those working in frontline public services are currently required to collect a lot of um, data. However, much of it is of little direct use to them. And actually, the people collecting it are often the kind of extremely highly trained uh, public service professionals like doctors, nurses, social workers, who actually we'd much rather they were spending their time using their professional judgment to deal with kind of um, provide support to the wide variety of um, people that they work with on a day-to-day -day basis. But currently they spend a lot of time doing paperwork and often it quite literally is paperwork. Um, and you know they're doing things with pens and paper because we do not have the digital infrastructure because over the last 10 years, capital budgets have been raided fairly consistently to plug gaps in day-to-day -day 
um, spending, which means kind of data collection and analysis is far more time consuming uh, than it might otherwise be. Uh, so, you know, take the NHS, for example. Compared to the uh, private sector and internationally, we've woefully underinvested uh, in IT, but also in management capacity. Uh, and so, while there were kind of certainly clinician shortages, I think you could do quite a lot to free up those clinicians that we already have uh, by putting far greater resource into increasing our kind of cadre of managers uh, and improving the quality of the IT and other systems that they are working with. Um, finally, just to move on to kind of central government and particularly the centre of government, by which I mean uh, number 10, uh, the Treasury and Cabinet Office. Uh, so the Trust government uh, has been bequeathed the performance management framework from the Johnson government based around uh, outcome delivery plans. <coughs> Talking about things that aren't sexy, outcome delivery plans are not sexy, uh, but I think it's actually a really powerful tool. So these are um, kind of plans that set key priorities and metrics by which departments can be held to account uh, by the centre of government. And critically, the data collected through the kind of the quarterly reporting process provides a kind of a single view of the truth on government performance uh, within government. And actually, that is a critical first step if you want to identify problems uh, and then resolve them. And so I think a Labour Prime Minister, Chancellor, Chancellor Duchy of Lancaster would benefit greatly from championing the outcome delivery plan framework, but also strengthening it as well. So at the moment, it's very much a Whitehall exercise. Um, actually, it would be much better if there was far more input uh, from the front line, uh, from service users uh, as well, to make sure, one, the outcomes you're achieving make sense, that you have a realistic theory of change, and also that you're collecting the right data, and that, that data is being collected in a way that isn't kind of overly burdensome on the people who are meant to be working in those services. Uh, you could better align the priorities and outcomes in outcome delivery plans with the voluminous number of kind of targets and metrics that public services are already uh, meant to report on. Uh, and finally, as ever, you could just be far more transparent about it. Uh, so the government does publish the metrics uh, for ODPs, but those are non-public ODPs that have far more information, for example, on the targets, theories of change, progress against trajectories, etc. So I think there's a, a lot of scope there to improve the use of data at the centre of government. Brilliant. <clears throat> Thanks, Nick. Nothing like discussion of outcome delivery plans to get the conference started, <laughs> I feel. Um, I will come to the audience before too long, but just picking up on a few of the themes that came up quite a lot in your opening contributions, um, I think particularly Matt and Helen, actually, around the sort of unsexiness of data sometimes. For all that, a lot of people also find it a very sexy and sort of shiny, <laughs> shiny topic. Um, there are a lot of problems with using the, the D word. I think a lot of people in public services, a lot of people in government, a lot of people in politics think that it's something that can still be siloed and is for, some, something, for somebody else to think about rather than something that informs public services and their own work. So I suppose, how can we make the case to people in opposition, people in politics, people in government, that actually they do need to take these questions like the use of data in public services seriously? How do we, how do we get beyond that sort of unsexiness, uh, if you like? I don't know who wants to go first for that one. Um, so uh, Estonia is you know, a problematic but also interesting case study, generally regarded very, very advanced, sophisticated digital nation, true of many other Scandinavian countries. But the, the thing that maybe transformed them was, it's not necessarily sexy, but it is attention-grabbing and alerting, and it's national security. So the reason why Estonia digitised their core government uh, infrastructure was because they suffered cyber, severe cyber attacks uh, from the Russian state uh, in the mid-2000s. Uh, Ukraine has experienced the same thing, six and not petty attacks for about the last six years. And I think because Britain, well, interesting, because Britain has, we are not aware of, really suffered particularly material cyber attacks, yet I think that's one of the reasons why it hasn't risen up the political attention. As an aside, uh, or relatedly, um, the NHS obviously did suffer some pretty bad cyber attacks in 2017 uh, with the WannaCry um, uh, bug. Uh, 
Um, but because the NHS systems were so old and so poorly networked, it was actually quite limited in its scale in terms of what the damage that it could do. Um, but, but, the, but I guess, the, 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 so there is, I think that, that uh, sense of urgency would be helpful and ideally we would not have to suffer a material cyber security incident on a national scale to get it. But I think it's, that might be a helpful way to get people to realise just how important this is. I think at the end of the day what citizens and politicians care about is people having better lives so actually I think although you know we say outcome delivery plans and frameworks and stuff aren't sexy in themselves they're clearly not I think that it's it's all it, we must always focus on what is the impact that we're trying to have um that uh and I think sometimes the problem we have is that we talk too generically, which kind of goes to your point about security. A number of people have talked about health. Um, so we have a health service that's in peril. Um, actually, this is uh, something very focused for the Labour Party. You know, we have a, a health service in peril that many argue uh, is being underinvested so that uh, it can be put into the hands of the private sector. Um, and so actually, uh, having a digital and data plan for delivering improved health services at the amount of money that can be afforded, then actually would be a really good way of getting digital and data back onto the agenda. Um, so I think that, that focusing on the outcomes rather than the digital or the data, and that being the way in which we can um, take that forward, I think is really important. Um, that uh, obviously there's a lot of talk, treasury, etc., around um, the business case, um, so which is important. But in my experience, so we do um, uh, intermittently uh, a, a business case for digital inclusion. Uh, we've just published one this year in May saying that for every pound invested in digital inclusion, the benefit is £9.48 to the, to the UK economy. Um, but of course, nobody cares about that because nobody cares about digital inclusion. Right? So I think that you've got to be really careful about your business cases. It's brilliant having that and ha it being robust and having that, having that information. But at the end of the day, it's going to be how can we make sure that citizens have a, a better service um, and people stop dying in ambulances because we've got great data, right? You've got to get it from where um, politicians will know it will make a difference um, on the doorstep and then make a difference once in government and, and delivering it. Thanks. I'd uh, echo a lot of those points, I think, about, you know, about kind of concrete and, and tangible uh, examples. Uh, and, and, you know, particularly just using plain language as well. I think uh, as, as policy people, we love to talk about, you know, data infrastructure and data portability or what have you. And actually, you know, for uh, public service users, it's actually just much more about, you know, having to fill out a form once, right, rather than um, they don't understand that in terms of data portability. They'll just think, uh, hang on, that's saving me a bit of time in my day. Um, and, you know, we've uh, been running a project at the uh, ODI on how policymaking can become more experimental, more uh, adaptive, more iterative, uh, and in looking at case studies, including Estonia. And, and we've, you know, made similar findings to actually latching onto the big challenges, whether that's na uh, national security or the climate crisis, can really help. You know, if you think about um, some of the big announcements Labour's making at this conference, you know, how to spend some of that 28 billion a year that Rachel Reeves wants to spend on on tackling the climate crisis, actually data infrastructure and data sharing is going to enable that and, and stop fiascos like we've seen with the current government's Green Homes Grant. So um, I think using some of those examples uh, will be really key. Um, but also, you know, we are talking in some cases about quite frontier stuff and frontier opportunities, and there's not always going to be those kind of off-the-shelf examples to use. So it does come down to that vision thing, and, and you know, it's about policymakers and politicians actually articulating something a bit bolder and a bit newer, even if they can't point to, um, you know, a Scandinavian or Baltic state that uh, was already doing it. Maybe it's about thinking outside the box and, and trying new things, and it comes back to that point about more adaptive and initiative policy. Um, yeah, so a couple of points, so and agreeing with a lot of what others have said. So I think partly it is about senior policymakers making publicly clear that this is important, and that is both within 
the civil service where perhaps data skills have not always been seen as a kind of a key component of a successful civil service career, particularly if you're kind of a policy professional uh, and you're on the route to perm secretary, but also, you know, politicians as well. You know, if you had a, uh, a prime minister and a chancellor who were saying this was important, then other people will think it is important as well. That said, I don't think senior politicians taking interest is enough in itself. I can think, for example, of a, a recent health secretary who you know, had a great interest in it, but I think that interest seemed to largely stem from wanting to wear turtlenecks and give TED Talks um, <laughs> rather than actual kind of focusing on why it matters. And I think, as others have said, that's why you've always got to bring it back to why does this matter to the public. It's not that it's shiny and exciting in itself, it's because it can help the government help people to live better lives. Thanks. Um, before I go to the audience, one final quick question to all of you that comes from something that all of you talked about in some way, which is the public, citizens, the people who actually use and should benefit from public services. What's the best way? How, how should they be brought into these discussions about how the better use of data can benefit public services? Do you, do you want to kick off, Nick? Yeah, I mean, as I, I kind of said in opening remarks, I just think it's a, treating the public like the adults that they actually are. I kind of often the sense that while well, the, the, the public won't like this leads to far shadier behavior than if you were just open and honest about it um, from the start. So I, I, I don't think there is a, clearly there are kind of big issues about the kind of whose data we have, the quality of that data, and the implications of it. But in terms of are people happy to share their data, I think in, in general they are. Just, just treat them like grown-ups. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think also a lot of it comes down to, um, you know, skills and knowledge, you know, uh, right through from the basic uh, kind of, um, you know, digital literacy uh, that Helm was talking about through to the kind of critical data literacy I mentioned earlier, and then right through to those kind of harder tech skills. Um, and then also, you know, yeah, treating people like adults, giving them the information, uh, a really good policy initiative in recent years, probably one of the only really good policy initiatives in recent years from central government, um, which has probably gone under a lot of people's radars because it, it, it's, you know, um, we don't think of it as sexy, but it's the kind of algorithmic transparency standard that's being uh, piloted by the Central Data and Digital Office, um, which, you know, is a really pioneering, I think, first in its world, uh, you know, attempt to give people, uh, publish that information about algorithms, whether that's, you know, A-levels, uh, health, you know, other public services, um, and explain to people, you know, the purpose of that, but also how their data is being used, um, and bring a bit more of that transparency, and we think there's a whole suite of things around that, you know, we, we, we talk about data assurance, audit, certification, um, that's a big and growing business-to-business -business sector, but it's something the public uh, sector needs to be doing a lot more of as well. Then just finally, I think, um, going from that, not just communicating the purpose and, and helping people to understand, giving them a bit more control and allowing them to kind of participate. So we've been working, for example, with the NHS AI lab on kind of public dialogue and participatory approaches, letting uh, patients have a bit more say in how their data is being used. And I think those measures are really important. They can build trust and they can build that knowledge, uh, but also just give people more control. And I think that's something Labour politicians certainly should be interested in. Thanks. Um. I don't want to totally disagree, but I just want to make sure that we understand that if we're talking about citizens using public services, we mean everybody. Um, and so, actually, we do know that a lot of people, particularly from more disadvantaged communities, are quite distrustful of government. Um, they've had bad experiences in the past. Um, that actually they, you know, that they have a sense that there's a big brother. They've had a bad experience at school. They've had a bad experience of the justice system often, sometimes they've had a bad experience with the health service. They're not very sophisticated users of public services either. So um, they're not um, able often to articulate what their needs are, to articulate where things have gone wrong. So I think we need to be incredibly careful that we don't massively generalize about the whole population being um, at the starting line for being able to have a dialogue about the use of, of their data. And I think it comes back to actually your last question, it's like, what's it for? Because quite often um, in the public sector, uh, at the front line, data has been collected to track people, right? Um, which is often the very fear that people have, that, that Big Brother is just tracking them and there's no benefit to them. Um, so being absolutely clear, I mean, wouldn't it be great in the health service if you didn't have to keep telling 
you know, someone in the next 20 minutes exactly what you're there for and what your name is and when you were last at, in the hospital. Um, actually, be, that being explained to you that that's why they're collecting more data and that's why people will know about it later would, would just make such a massive difference. So let's just make sure when we talk about citizens, we don't just think of people like us um, that actually that there are people for whom getting to that starting line is going to be much more difficult. And I think that we absolutely need to make sure that we are um, thinking about them because it's often for them that those public services become even more critical, as Antonio said earlier, that they're at often at critical moments in their lives and therefore um, making sure those public services are working um, is so important. And three quick things on this. So what just building very much on, on Helen's point about, um, so we with the PSE do a lot of work around uh, creating whatever they're now called state secure data environments. I think those terms automatically like cause heckles because why are you telling me this is safe? Um, but uh, uh, so in Leeds and particularly in Bradford, there's two great initiatives, Born in Bradford and another one called Live, Living in Leeds, where they would proactively go out to seldom heard groups or whatever term that you want to use who are slightly more distrustful of public services and actually try and talk to them where they're at in their communities, in their own language, in their own uh, homes and places to try and understand the barriers. And I think the point there is that that is expensive and it takes time and it's not going to happen overnight. And we have to accept that there is a cost to doing that, but the benefits are significant. But uh, going back to the business case point, you can't just assume that uh, everyone will be happy and everything will be fine. And it's a, it's a material and significant undertaking. And the second point, is just to say, think of the counterfactuals. You know, when we go into hospitals uh, to help digitising patient records sometimes, there are literally wards, we've seen wards full of paper notes, right? And uh, for everyone who's been into a hospital, they're not the most secure place, right? You can just walk onto those wards and you can access those notes. So, of course, it's not qu at quite the same scale, but your data is not particularly secure at the moment. And I think... All of this conversation tends to be from the place that we're going to make it somehow less secure. It's actually all about making it more secure. Um, and then the final point is actually talk up the real benefits. So there, there have been significant improvements with data.gov.uk. It's a brilliant thing for open data. But gov.uk is an amazing resource, an absolutely amazing resource, which we've copied all across the world. And indeed, there's something called the, the Tell Us Once service, which I, I think is just brilliant. It's a, I mean, to say, um, I know it's really as a they said recent bereavement and they kept on getting letters about hospital appointments of that person who passed away. That's really awful. That's an awful experience. But with something which is called the Tell Us Once service, which the government has done, um, you effectively just fill in a form and say, once, I'm going to tell you about this, this uh, death. Uh, and that data has to be shared with all relevant departments so you're not bothered again. And by showing people that these changes do happen and it is possible and they're not you know, particularly scary, I think we can change the narrative. Could I just uh, come back uh, really briefly on on the point around um, uh, you know people uh, from the starting line that, that Helen was making because I think it's a really important one um, and I think there's a tendency when we talk about the importance of you know, public dialogue and so on I think you're absolutely right we make an assumption that people are like us they're going to want to have sit in these meetings and talk about data right mm -hmm. um, and I think you're right it's a skills thing but it's also a time thing you know if you're working two jobs and trying to raise kids at the same time you're not going to want to go to a panel about how your NHS data is being used. Um, but I think, you know, something that we at the ODI think is really important is kind of working with existing participatory and representative structures, right? So trade unions, consumer groups, local organisations, like potentially like some of the ones Antonio mentioned. I think that's one of the ways around that, you know, and ensuring that you're kind of meeting people where they are rather than just imposing a kind of new, uh, you know, burden of time or skills on them. Thanks all. Um, I'm going to go to the audience now. I've already got two hands up in the front. Um, do wait uh, for the microphone to come to you. Remember, we are on the record. Um, and in fact, I'll take the first three questions. Do tell us who you are, where you're from, if you can. And um, yes. Um. Okay, so I'm Liz Hind. Um, by day, I work at the moment for Women's Budget Group, um, training people up, uh, grassroots women's organisations to use data. So full-on badge-holding data nerd. Um, however, the thing that I'd like to talk about and I'd like to ask you about is um, during COVID, I was running a pub and being a full-on data nerd, I read the guidelines for track and trace and we were told to break data protection. That's, that was what was in the guidelines. We were told to do that. So, for example, we were told to use our restaurant bookings 
as track and trace data, which is obviously a huge conflict um, with the way that data is collected. Um, and yeah, people minded having their data collected for track and trace for some very good reasons, um, particularly because it wasn't used. It was never used. Um, we were told to collect it for the, for the NHS, and, and that was you know, the reason we were given, but nobody ever collected it from the NHS and used it for track and trace. If a pub had an outbreak or you know, a customer come in, we, we were told, oh, well, you could ring your customers up and tell them. And it's like, no, 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 that's, that's a huge conflict in what you've just told me to do. And we tried to say no, because, you know, um, and I have to disagree with you, Nick, people mind, I mind about my data. Service users mind about having their data used, but we couldn't say no, because then, well, well you're not doing your bit for the fight for COVID, are you? And we were told to shut up. So, of course, when it came to digital passports, we said no. And I'm proud of the fact that we said no, because we ha I know that there were massive data abuses going on. Um, because I was at the front line running a pub, having to do that. So how do we get to say no? I don't want you to use my data in that way and actually be listened to. Brilliant, thank you. Um, another question there. Hi, Dr. Natalie Byron from the Legal Education Foundation. Um, I think that's a really good challenge and question to all of us. And I wanted to, although in general I agree with Nick, um, I did want to push back slightly at the foundation. We support lots of organisations working with very vulnerable people who have been and experienced material harm by the way in which government has used their data, whether that's through universal credit or immigration services. And I think um, one of the big challenges that um, I have and a question to the panel is there's a lot of there's been a lot of interest in participatory approaches and things like citizen juries and one-off exercises. Um, and I think the point Matt made about linking this to existing democratic structures is really important because I do have a slight concern that we don't know enough about how not to do that in a tokenistic way at present. And I do worry that some of the approaches that are designed um, to bring people's voices into these discussions are kind of cherry-picking responses, and so I wondered if the panel had any suggestions for how we might bring about more kind of meaningful engagement. Um, the second question that I really had to all of you is, we've at the Foundation worked for a long time on trying to improve the data that's collected about the justice system and the way in which it's governed and shared. Um, one of the challenges, um, and you talked about political leadership, seems to me that fixing some of the long-standing ecosystem issues across any policy area goes beyond the term of any one individual government. And I wonder, do we need an independent organisation that can lead on this? What would be the governance structure that would stop making this vital foundational work a political football that's always going to come second to policy or legislation? And, and do you, any of you have any, any of suggestions for how that might look? Thanks so, so much. You've all been brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. Thank you. And we've got a question there as well. Hi. Um, Martin Howell from Worldline. We're um, Europe's largest payment service provider. I come at this from a transport angle. Um, Antonio talked about the fact that so much data across government is siloed, maybe through antiquated systems or through lack of coordination or lack of understanding of benefits. In the commercial sector, I think it's through... Um, commercial self-interest. They keep the data, but they don't know what to do with it and they don't know why it's valuable. So my question is, we all generate data every second of every day. Who does that data actually belong to? And if the answer is, as I expect you're going to say, me, how can we use that to inform policy better? Brilliant, thank you. I'll, I'll go from... Antonio down to Nick. Actually, I, I might go the other way because it's, it's the opposite of 2010. I don't agree with Nick. So we'll, we'll start with Nick and go the other way. So we've got, we've got Liz on how to say no, Natalie on how to get meaningful engagement, and do we need an independent organisation to go beyond the problems of, of one government, and Martin about who data belongs to and how can it better inform policy. Some brilliant questions. Let's hear some brilliant answers. So I'm not sure I agree with Nick, to be honest, when you put it like that. Uh, um, look, so I was looking at very much from a 
kind of the using of services. I think you're absolutely right, though. Where that data is being collected so that the kind of coercive power of the state can be applied, whether that's kind of benefits, immigration, test and trace, where it literally means that you're legally required to stay in your house for a certain period of time, clearly people are going to have very, very different and reasonable objections to that type of data. So I, I think I, I, I should have been clearer about the type, kind of type of service uh, and type of government work I was talking about. I think the really interesting thing there is you said that it was breaking data protection rules. So how did it, how did it come to be? And I suspect that is something to do with the kind of the data literacy of the kind of the people making those decisions in the centre of government, and frankly, just the way that the Johnson government tended to make decisions. It was a kind of small number of generally guys in the room, without really considering the wider implications for frontline public services, for families, for people who didn't look like them. And I, I think that's a kind of how can you stop that? Because you said, how can you say no? But how can we get to a position where you shouldn't have to say no, um, to be honest? Um, I don't have an answer, but I, for me, that as a kind of, that's the really interesting policy-making question. And then I guess just on the sort of the independent body, I mean, we often joke, like, maybe we should just have an OBR for something else. Um, and I think in some ways they do take the, the politics out of it, but they also require the kind of ongoing political consent of whoever's in power at the time. And, I, you know, we're seeing at the moment, you know, the OBR is a widely respected both in the UK and internationally. And even if that can have its kind of legitimacy uh, undermined, then you you basically worry. So I, I, so I, I think in the short term, something like that could help. But, it, you know, at the end of the day, it always, always depends on kind of political masters. <laughs> Uh, yeah, thanks. Great, great questions. I think just on, on the point about uh, saying no, I, I think that really illustrates the kind of dis disjunct between, that we've touched on between kind of data people and data policymakers and the public, right? Because actually, as Gavin said at the beginning, you know, the government in its national data strategy cites COVID as a great example of how data was used, whereas for most people, I think you're right, the, the experience is different. And it's challenging because I think big picture, you know, from a policy point of view, we do want to see more business for government data sharing, right? But it has to be done the right way. We're not going to get there if people don't trust it, if the processes aren't in the right place um, in government to actually keep that data safe. And I think we're in a really challenging context at the moment with the uh, Data Protection and Digital Information Bill with kind of, at the moment, at least people know their rights. They know kind of how they can say no to a certain extent. Um, but, you know, a lot of the foundational things are changing, right? right down to the definition of, of personal data, which is pretty worrying. On the point um, around um, kind of embedding it in, in those uh, democratic organisations, I think that's challenging and, and we kind of need to be in it for the long haul. Um, I think some organisations uh, are doing great work in this, the TUC and various of their member unions, Prospect and Community in particular, um, which from a consumer point of view do a lot of work on this, but I think it's about um, building capacity in that ecosystem and maybe training, you know, uh, local, uh, in the case of unions, for example, uh, union reps, uh, and making sure that uh, knowledge and capacity kind of percolates down at a local level, then they can actually, do, you know, represent people uh, on these issues. Just on the point about structures, you know, I agree with that, uh, the point Nick made about um, independent bodies will, will often end up as political footballs or, or kind of toothless without that consent and crucially without that investment. You know, if you look at uh, climate policy, for example, the Com Committee on Climate Change is pretty well respected and, and it is independent, right? But pr uh, every year, like clockwork, it publishes a damning report saying the government is not, uh, it's, it's far from meeting its, its climate goals and that's probably not going to change anytime soon, unfortunately. Um, and and, and there's, there's not really any kind of recourse there. So it is challenging, you know, how do you actually, um, how do you actually have that independence? Maybe there's something to be said about having some sort of body with an endowment that can actually do things itself rather than uh, just kind of call on the government to do things. But, um, you know, I think we need to look carefully at the different models, whether that's the CCC, uh, you know, the new Office of Environmental Protection, National Infrastructure Commission. What, what do we think works? What do we think doesn't? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. I think others can speak to the ownership point. Right, lots of good questions. I'm going to pick up on the question about how do we make um, participation, how do we make engagement more meaningful? 
Um, I'm actually Antonio said that it's difficult and it's expensive, <laughs> right? Um, and so I, I think, and you'll be surprised to hear me say this, is that I think we've always got to design, decide what, what are we doing it for? Because if it's for the majority, you know, if it's for the 22 million people who are using the NHS app, then that's a completely different question. So who's not, who's not showing up and what would it be? What would we have to do to help them to do that? Um, I think that actually recognising that most um, engagement is tokenistic would also be a good idea. So for people to say explicitly that they are not doing this in a participative way that includes everybody who's using those public services would be a great start. Um, in the, uh, the digital democracy area, that, that one thing that was often uh, rolled out for Estonia was the um, mayor of Paris did a participative budgeting process and half a million people, half a million Parisians took part. And we went, isn't this amazing? And I was going, well, I'm sure there's millions of people live in Paris who weren't taking part in this at all. Um, and then, Martin, your point about use of commercial data, I just want to um, uh, sing the praises of Lloyd's Banking Group again. So, you know, they, they, they do the analysis and then they share the analysis. So they, they do the analysis yearly on a million customers um, about their use of technology um, and that feeds into both... Um, uh, policy on digital inclusion, but also financial literacy and financial inclusion. Um, and so that's one answer. So the data isn't being shared, but the analysis of the data and providing that analysis, um, both at um, a macro level, but you can also get down into some of that data as well, um, to actually inform policy making, I think is probably a really good example. Um, I'll, I'll try and be speedy and just all say, uh, Martin, you're on the who owns the data? Brilliantly simple question, incredibly complicated answer. And, and, and actually, uh, I, so I have a feeling that it is, uh, we need to find a way to explain it simply to people, but the, uh, they probably won't like the answer. So if I were to uh, paint a portrait of Gavin, for instance, uh, another one. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, obviously, there's, a, there's some residual data there, which is like how Gavin looked, which he owned, right? But the fact that I have created that painting is new data which I own and there's lots of parallels there in terms of how data is processed by different organizations be it be the NHS be it commercial providers and others and so at an aggregate level not necessarily on a personalized level the data doesn't really belong to you I think that's a really difficult conversation to have with the public and doesn't necessarily lead to particularly fruitful answers but it's a really interesting uh, area and, and probably some greater transparency about that wouldn't wouldn't harm uh, Liz, on your point about the abuse of data, there have to be consequences there. There, there have to be consequences. I think this is one of the, maybe we, actually it's reflecting on kind of what we all said, there has to be obvious signs that if you abuse the law in terms of data, you will suffer the consequences. And that, that's been the case with GDPR fines to date, to my take, but I think it's really important that people can see that and that will give more trust. Um, in terms of citizen juries from national, so I've seen them work really well. I, and I, I must admit, I wasn't always... Uh, convinced, but in London, so we do work with uh, One London, which is a kind of pan London data sharing uh, organization. They do uh, 100 citizens, obviously, representatives we've taken, um, deliberative poll. I mean, they're, they're really, really impressive, really get under the skin. I think you get very, very rich qualitative information in terms of how people feel, and they're repeated regularly, and I think they, they can work. Uh, and then, in terms of independent organizational structures, um, I think no, because a lot of these technological questions are political, you know, about vaccine passports or in terms of how your data is shared, actually there should be a democratic way in which people can have a say um, as to how they feel about that. And I think that keeping that within the political structure is the best way of doing so. Thanks. If we can keep them to s short sentences, I will take a final quick round of questions and invite a quick uh, round of answers from our panel. I know we've got a hand up at the back. Um, anyone else? And then we've got another one there as well. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, hello, my name is Kevin Keith. I'm, I'm uh, here, sort of, with the Open Government Network. I'm surprised none of you mentioned the Information Commissioner's Office as an independent, sort of, from a, a, a sort of public data perspective. Um, but actually, I, I suppose my question is really. I mean, I think the questions have been excellent. Um, but we know, for example, that people have higher trust in the NHS than they do with the NHS holding our data, and there are real distinctions between the management of data. I just wondered broadly, um, do you think that the narrative has to change as data being good rather than bad? 
because at the moment, I still think most people perceive data to be a bad thing, and we do not really hear the good and, and, and the vitalness of, of data too. Thanks, and then just over there. Hi. Um, I think one of the real opportunities with data is to match between different data sets. And as anyone who works with kind of big uh, public service related data at the moment knows, that's very difficult because the governance of different systems and the secure systems that they're on mean that you just can't bring them together. Is there a ways that we could address that? Brilliant. Two massive questions to try and get everybody to answer in a couple of sentences. Thank you very much. Um, we'll start with Antonio. Uh, so, uh, Gavin, completely agree. It should be framed as positively without kind of you know, trying to pull the wool over people's eyes as possible. So somebody, it might be uh, useful to look at the Rory Kettering-Jones, used to be the BBC's tech correspondent, uh, suffers from Parkinson's, and he has a, a brilliant, um, probably Substack or whatever, whatever they're called these days, uh, so one of those, um, where he talks about Please share my data. I have a really debilitating illness and I want research to go ahead as quickly as possible so I can get better or for future generations can be. And I think framing it in terms of those benefits is really important. In terms of the matching data, completely agree. So there's, there's I think the money's probably dried up. The there was a, something called the Treasury Shared Outcomes Framework, which was a budget given to initiatives to link data together. So something called Bold Better Outcomes Linked to Data, which was matching across justice and education. And, potentially health, I think, is a really interesting example and a very good example of trying to do precisely that with a, with a view to um, you know, earlier interventions. Uh, and it, it, it is possible. It's, it's just complicated and messy, and it requires you know, getting into the weeds of the data. Um, I think, uh, just back to the narrative piece, um, I think this conversation today has been really helpful, and I think part of that is because there's different types of people in the room I'm not often, I don't hang out with these data nerds very often. <laughs> um, so, so actually bringing people together who understand the users, um, frontline, um, and, and the data nerds together, I think will actually help us to have a narrative that works. Because I think, unfortunately, we've talked a lot about silos. Those narratives are often just created by one of those silos. But it's really about working together that will, will make us... Um, create the better outcomes. And I, th I think that overall, just from a policy point of view, I think we all need to be a, lo a lot bolder about um, pushing forward the benefits of digital and of data um, and not be scared about it. And I also get very fed up of people saying, well, it's just everywhere, isn't it? So we don't need to talk about it anymore because there really is um, a massive lack, uh, missed opportunity if we don't do more with digital and with data. And therefore, I think it, it's on all of us to take that message forward and make sure that people are listening. I, I really agree with that point about you know, bringing people together and it needs to happen not only you know, once a year at Labour Conference, but um, at, at all different levels, all times of year, you know, at a local level, really importantly, again, to return to the point about different grassroots groups, shop stewards, etc. There, there need to be just conversations about this happening, kind of percolating around. Um, on the point about the ICO, or you know, soon to be called the Information Commission, which I think sounds quite sinister, um, <laughs> uh, sadly uh, it probably won't be very sinister or powerful because there's, there's, there's some pretty grim threats to its independence uh, in the bill that's going through, uh, although not as bad perhaps as some of the initial proposals floated. So that, that, that's a real worry, I think, in time, trying to flip that narrative if you have a toothless regulator. Um, just on the point about fragmentation, I, that comes back to, I think, what I was saying earlier about you know, more than 100 organisations in central government alone and probably more than that with um, responsibilities around data, you know, there is this risk of fragmentation. I think hopefully CDDO will be able to drive uh, a bit more kind of improvements in terms of standards and, and interoperability. I think also something that's interesting and, and, and could have good or, or, or very bad effects is um, the knowledge assets agenda being pushed by uh, Treasury and uh, Cabinet Office. You know, they published um, Rosebook guidance last year uh, for um, civil service departments on, on how to manage knowledge assets, including things like know-how and IP, but also data. And potentially, I think that could help to improve um, some sort of coordination by having a shared you know, operational approach to how you think about managing data assets, including some of those aspects around interoperability. But um, yeah, too early to tell, really, I think. Um, just on the ICO point, um, it doesn't have that many teeth at the moment. And frankly, I don't think it is sufficiently resourced to use the teeth that it does already have. Um, it's a bit of a problem. On the sort of matching data point, just wanted to finish by talking about data that I think about quite a lot, which is procurement data. And actually, 
it should be possible, for example, to link spending data to contract data. You know, we have a really good open contracting standard that is used internationally and that the government is nominally uh, supportive of. The problem is that so much of the data that is published is not compliance with that standard. Uh, and it's therefore incredibly difficult to, to get a full picture because we, we, just, we just don't have it. Uh, and so standards are great, but actually we then need to use them. Great, thank you. Some very quick uh, parish notices before I let you find some other interesting events to go to. None of them will be as good as this one, but, you know. <laughs> um, as I mentioned, this is the first of 15 IFG events here at conference this week. Uh, lots more details on the flyers that are um, scattered around the room. Do take one with you or find it on our website, including lots on public services. There's one on data, evidence and levelling up later today. And I'm chairing another one on how we should govern in the digital age tomorrow morning at 10.30. So if you enjoyed this, you'll probably enjoy that. Uh, lots of other data and digital related stuff from um, IFG to come. Uh, the latest performance tracker will be out in the next... 1st of November. 1st of November. Um, we have got some work coming out in the next few months on data sharing during the pandemic with lots of lessons, touching on loads of the issues that we've touched on today from regulation to participation. Um, we also organise a monthly event series called Data Bytes, where lots of the things uh, we've talked about have come up. So again, public use of commercial data, how to data match, and indeed knowledge assets as well. So 34th event is next week. You can watch it online. You can watch the archive of 33 events so far online as well. Um, there is still some breakfast at the back, so do tuck into that uh, before you leave. And all that is uh, left for me to say are three very big thank yous. First of all, to all of you, uh, our fantastic audience this morning, for uh, coming at 8 a.m. and asking some brilliant questions to the Bright Initiative from Bright Data for making uh, this morning's event possible. And finally, do join me in a huge round of applause for our fantastic panellists. Thank you very much indeed.